Okay, quick heads up. I have a very limited window to record this, so if there's some background noise with my crazy neighbors doing crazy neighbor things, there's not much I can do about it. But you've been fairly warned. All right, how about we do another thing you might not know? It's been a while since we've done one. I'm feeling it. How about you? Are you feeling it? Is it time for a thing we might not know? Damn straight it is. You bet your sweet bippy. If you were thinking that I'd be doing something thematically Christmassy, you're not entirely wrong. I did, in fact, write something thematically Christmassy because I'm a topical cyclone, but the script wasn't quite where I wanted it to be, so I put it in the bin where it belongs. And that's fine. That's the process. That's art. They're not all winners. Maybe we'll get around to it at some point in the future when I'm a better writer. Who knows? But for now, I am protecting all of you from the full extent of my unhinged rambling. That is my Christmas present to all of you. Don't say I never did anything for you. So instead of unhinged rambling, I'm going to be pulling something off the shelf that has been sitting there for quite a while now, and it's something that I'm excited to finally be able to do that I never actually found time for. So, to keep it Christmassy, how about we assume that there's a Christmas tree somewhere in the background of this episode? It's just there. It's not a prominent plot point, but the Christmas tree is there. It's in shot all the same. And that is enough to make this a Christmas show. That's right, I'm applying the Rambo logic here. There's a Christmas tree in the first Rambo movie, Rambo First Blood, which is enough to make it a Christmas movie. Just the mere presence of a Christmas tree makes it a Christmas movie. So Rambo is canonically a Christmas movie. Rambo First Blood Part 2 is also canonically a Christmas movie because Santa, just like John Rambo, Santa also committed war crimes in Myanmar. So First Blood Part 2 is also a Christmas movie. But back to this show, ultimately the primary reason that I'm doing this topic now is because I've caught myself more than a few times referencing what I'm about to talk about and then berating people for not listening to my show and then realizing that I haven't actually done this show yet, it exists only in my head, so I'm upset at my friends and family for not reading my mind for a show that I've never actually done. So let's fix that problem now, why not? And before we start proper, this show is going to be set in the city of New Amsterdam, which means that there is a very strong chance that one of you is going to break the Patreon bro code and forward this show on to my very good friend, the comedian Peter Mizell. So, Pete, if you do happen to be listening, I wish you a very merry Jewish festival of phlegm. We're well overdue for a catch-up. All right, here we go. Something you may not know. If Yankee Doodle went to town riding on a pony, and if he were to, hypothetically, stick a feather in his cap, and if he were to, furthermore, call that feather macaroni, what does it all mean? Well, strap yourselves in, this is a doozy. Alright, so let's go back a few hundred years. The Americas are long since discovered by people who aren't Columbus, because Columbus never actually got there. But other people did, and for a couple of hundred years there was a mad scramble by the European powers to get their slice of the North American pie, because they had firearms and the natives didn't. So everyone is grabbing up huge chunks of the Americas. France goes south and gets a lot of territory there, but the main power play is up north, about the same latitude as Portugal, but on the other side of the Atlantic. Obviously, the British are a big presence here, because the sun never set on the British Empire. 
They are at their absolute height here. They have the biggest ships, the biggest cannons, the biggest guns, the biggest armies. So if anyone in the world has a problem with their manifest destiny, they can tell it to the business end of Brown Bess. And that is why Britain is on top. If you don't know what Brown Bess was, it was the affectionate nickname for the Land Patton Flintlock Musket, which was the best gun in the world for a significant period of time, and one of the main reasons that most of the world now celebrates their independence from the British. Bonus thing you may not know, 65 countries in the world today have a public holiday celebrating the time they finally repelled the British. My country included. Technically, Australia's Independence Day is New Year's Day, January 1st, because, I mean, who hasn't gotten so blackout drunk on New Year's Eve that they accidentally federated? But Aussies don't want to combine two public holidays, so we have a separate, much more controversial Independence Day. So there, bonus thing you may not know. So in the 1700s, there's a huge chunk of North America called New England, because the British are red hot when it comes to naming things. But there's one little sovereignty that isn't part of New England. It's smack bang in the middle of all of these English territories, but it is not English itself. No, this particular region was settled by, of all people, the Dutch. There are only two things I can't stand in this world. People who are intolerant of other people's cultures and the Dutch. And it is called New Amsterdam because the Dutch are also cracking fun when it comes to naming new colonies. So there's a huge chunk of Dutch people settling this area known as New Amsterdam. And nobody else likes these Dutch. They think they're super freaky people. And they're not entirely wrong, because the Dutch are indeed super freaky people. How about new, you crazy Dutch bastard? Now, what do we do when there's a group of people who are different to us that we don't like? That's right, we need to invent a slur for those people, so that they will know that we don't like them because we're all racist xenophobes at heart. People who are intolerant of other people's cultures. And because racial slurs are never that creative, we, as in everyone who isn't Dutch, we decided to make fun of their freaky Dutch names. Dutch hater! Now, two of the most common names for male Dutch colonists in the Americas were their versions of the names John and Cornelius. John, in Dutch, is Jan. Cornelius, in Dutch, is Keys. Most of the male colonists were named either Jan or Keys. So if they're not a Jan, they're probably a Keys. So if you're talking to a Dutch colonist in New Amsterdam in the 1700s, you're probably talking to either a Jan or a Keys, and we can already see where this is heading. Run both of those names together, and they're a Yan Keys. Yankee, Yankee. So that's why it be like it do. Yankee is an ethnic slur against Dutch people. Dutch hater! And we shouldn't use ethnic slurs like that, so from now on, when I feel like being mean to an American, I will no longer use the incredibly pejorative term Yankee, which is hateful towards the Dutch, and I will instead use the Australian term Seppo which is Australian rhyming slang for septic tank, or yank, and that is obviously much better. Nobody in this world is a completely good person. And also, before we go too defensive for the Dutch here, they did bring this on themselves. Dutch is just a funny language. Here's something fun you can do. Go into your phone and set your phone's language to Dutch. It is hilarious. Phone becomes telephone. Notes becomes Notities. And Spank Me Daddy 
is Give me in clappy pappy. So the Dutch brought it on themselves is my point. However, for the sake of balance, let's hang some shit on the British for a minute, who invented the English language but none of them can seem to speak it. For instance, there is a town in England whose name is spelled Rampersham, which is pronounced Ransom. Towcester is pronounced Toaster, and Olnwick is pronounced Anik. So don't think you're safe, England. You also have stupid names. And in further balance, I myself live one suburb away from a place known as Punchbowl. That's the actual name, Punchbowl. So Australians can't judge either. The city of Brisbane is pronounced Brisbane, Melbourne is Melbourne, and Adelaide is actually pronounced Shit Factory. So, the more you know. Sorry, where was I? Oh yeah, Yankee. So that's one version of events. There are also sources that the Dutch themselves coined the term Yankee as a pejorative for the English in the colonies. So a complete 180 of what I just said. Yankee can still be considered the diminutive of Jan, or John, So Yankee is Dutch for Little John, or Johnny Boy. Kind of like how successive world wars saw the English all branded as either a Tommy or the Germans as a Fritz. And there's also an argument to be made that the term Yankee actually comes from the Cherokee word Inki, which means coward. This claim is harder to validate, and unlikely as the Cherokee were perhaps a bit too far south to be making up racist nicknames for the colonists, although I must say that it is absolutely the kind of thing that the Cherokee would do. So either the English used Yankee as a way to mock the Dutch, or the Dutch used it as a term to mock the English, or the Cherokee used it as a word to mock everyone, take your pick, it's all good. The point is that it all meant the same thing, no matter who was doing it. Calling someone a Yankee was said with exactly the same intent as one might use the terms redneck or hillbilly or hick today. Yankee meant someone other, someone not cultured like you are cultured, but from out there in the boondocks where they don't know how to speak good and stuff, hey? Man, the boy's gone, Max Dowie's in the gravel and shit near Lidcombe Stash. As the poet and author E.B. White would later put it, quote, To foreigners, a Yankee is an American. To Americans, a Yankee is a Northerner. To Northerners, a Yankee is an Easterner. To Easterners, a Yankee is a New Englander. To New Englanders, a Yankee is a Vermonter. And in Vermont, a Yankee is somebody who eats pie for breakfast. End quote. And it's weird how often I quote E.B. White, because I really don't actually like anything he actually did. Weird. So anyway, that's why Yankee be like it do. As for the doodle part of Yankee Doodle, doodle comes from the low German word dodel, which means idiot or simpleton. So saying Yankee Doodle is saying dumb hick. Now, the tune to Yankee Doodle was originally a Dutch harvest song that people could sing in a round, much like a shanty, while they worked out in the fields. The source I'm using for this claims that the original tune used, and I quote, nonsense lyrics without any sort of actual words, but I'm fairly confident that the so-called nonsense lyrics were just Dutch. And because the Dutch were colonizing New Amsterdam, that's the way the tune found its way across the Columbian Exchange and into the colonies. Maybe. The tune itself was quite popular and made its way all around Europe in the 15 and 1600s. The English used it as a song about one Lucy Lockett being pickpocketed. Lucy Lockett lost her pocket, Kitty Fisher found it. Not a penny was there in it, only ribbon round it. 
Another version is a German drinking song that migrated with the Hessian mercenaries serving in the British army at the time, and yet another version was sung by the Puritans, and it was all about how God hates everything fun. So you can take your pick, all of those options are equally valid. Just like how the alphabet song is the same tune as Twinkle Twinkle Little Star, nobody knows where these things actually originated, it all goes into the grand cosmic gumbo that we call the human experience. And it was the same with the tune to Yankee Doodle. I mean, it's also the theme song to Roger Ramjet, so it pops up everywhere. Roger Ramjet and his eagles fighting for our freedom. The first example we have of the word Yankee entering into the zeitgeist in the way that we know it today, for that we need to go back to the year 1754, when the French-Indian War kicked off. So obviously I'm not covering another war right now, we're all warred out, but the brass tacks are that the Europeans were all colonizing North America, and they were usually fighting amongst themselves, the Native Americans didn't like all this and fought everyone, and the entire country was on fire because colonialism is not fun. Basically, the French and the English were at war all over the globe, because they're usually at war, and the Americas got caught up in the conflict. In broad strokes, the French occupied the southern bits of North America, and the British owned most of the north. The natives were not keen on this, but they didn't have gunpowder, so they were forced to chew on a dick. As happens when colonial empires go to war, they levy troops from the local regions to fight in their rich people dick-swinging contests. And the people from the colonies, well, they weren't as, uh, shall we say, cultured as the people from the old country. And that causes some friction between the colonials and the people from Europe. The main account we have here is from one Dr. Richard Schuckberg, who was a surgeon attached to the British regulars at the time. And Schuckberg watched the local American soldiers trickling into the camps, and he was aghast at their uh, bucolic ways. Why, these people are barely civilized. They were wearing, and I quote here, fashions that had not been seen in England in over a hundred years, and are holding every weapon except those familiar to the fresh, well-drilled British troops, end quote. And this Dr. Schuckberg cat was so bemused and horrified at these rednecks that he was taken by muse and he was forced to pen a satirical song mocking the American colonial troops. And this is the first historical account of the song Yankee Doodle, although it's not what we're familiar with. Schuckberg's version is as follows. Brother Ephraim sold his cow and bought him a commission, and then he went to Canada to fight for the nation. But when Ephraim he came home, he proved an arrant coward. He wouldn't fight the Frenchman there for fear of being devoured. Sheep's head and vinegar, buttermilk and tansy. Boston is a Yankee town, sing hey doodle dandy. As a regular 18th century Weird Al Yankovic right there. And Schuckberg, as was the style at the time, and presumably with an onion tied to his belt, he set the song to the most common satirical music of the day that of the same Dutch harvest rhyme that everyone used for pretty much everything from churning butter to making fun of Oliver Cromwell. And I think we just need to take a moment here to hang some shit on Schuckberg's idea of what constitutes a rhyme, because he is not a poet. 
You cannot rhyme commission and nation. It doesn't work, Schuckberg. But apparently back in the day it did, so somehow the song stuck. And he specified in the sheet music, because he wanted this thing to go viral, so he printed copies of it. He was that confident in it. He specified that the song should be sung, quote, through the nose and in the West Country drawl and dialect, end quote, which was actually the accent of those Americans in the country at the time. If you're not down with the freaky diaspora of English accents, West Country is where Hagrid from Harry Potter is from. Yara conscript Harry, go fight a Frenchman. And as for Brother Ephraim, there's a bit to unpack there that isn't really worth the effort, but it refers to one Colonel Ephraim Williams, who was an American officer who was actually quite bad at being an officer. And he had a run of poor commands culminating in the Battle of Lake George, which his side won, but he somehow managed to get his head blown off despite being at the command center at the back of the battle. Americans today like to paint him as some kind of patriot and an inspiration for the Founding Fathers, but no, the guy was an idiot, and the Americans can count themselves lucky that he somehow managed to get himself killed. So Yankee Doodle, this version of it, was written to laugh at how the American settlers were all dumb hicks, through the lens of Ephraim Williams, who was indeed a dumb hick who fancied himself a gentleman and a scholar of war. He bought himself the position of colonel and then managed to catch a cannonball with his teeth. So Dr. Schuckberg wrote about all of this and then began distributing this song throughout the British forces and their marching bands used to play it on parade, at which point everyone would piss themselves laughing because this is the 18th century version of Ostentatious. There's a second, much deeper nuance to that reference and it has to do with how nobody in Australian comedy actually likes Ostentatious and many of us want to punch him in the mouth, but I don't expect anyone to pick up on that reference and you can safely ignore it. So this Yankee Doodle song gets spread throughout the colonies and it's a banger among the British because those Americans are all indeed dumb hicks, at least according to the British. And it gets spread through that great land and then it gets some purple monkey dishwasher action because everyone had a go at rewriting it and tweaking the lyrics to better suit their local brand of country bumpkin. One of the more famous remixes deals with General George Washington. This was in the days before George Washington became the leader of the famous War of Independence. He was simply the guy in charge of the rebel American colonies at the time, and this version of the song went. Then Congress sent Great Washington, all clothed in gold and breeches, to meet old Britain's warlike sons and make some rebel speeches. And this would have gone gangbusters at the time, because history has been very, very kind to George Washington. To most people, Washington is one of the greatest American citizens ever, and he did indeed lead the Americas to victory over the British and become the first president of the United States of America. I don't deny that, but what often gets lost in history, and I will do a full show about this at some point, but Washington was a terrible general. He was truly heinous. He was so bad at it. It's just that he was phenomenally lucky, supernaturally lucky. He is the luckiest human being who ever lived. 
There are several points in Washington's career where the entire revolution was going to end because the British were about to absolutely crush the Americans because of some dumb shit that Washington did. And then, out of nowhere, there's a freak snowstorm that blocks the British ships or something. And then the next day, when Washington needs good weather, suddenly, after that freak snowstorm, the next day, there's an unseasonable heat wave. And that's exactly what Washington wants. And this kind of thing happens at least 12 times in his career. He was supernaturally lucky. Washington was very, very bad at what he did, but the way that everything fell into his lap makes even a hardened atheist wonder if there is a God and that that God had a substantial bet on George Washington. So anyway, the point is that everyone back in the day knew that George Washington was a bit of a dill. So a song making fun of him would have gone down really, really well because he was a bit of a tit. And there's a second verse as well that goes, Yankee Doodle came to town to buy a firelock. We will tar and feather him and so we will John Hancock. So the Yankee Doodle there, the dumb hillbilly, was George Washington. And John Hancock, one of the other founding fathers, was also included because his name is really easy to rhyme. In this case with firelock which refers to a musket, but there's another hidden layer of meaning there because firelocks at that point were out of date. They were a very old rifle. So not only are these dumb hillbillies indeed dumb hillbillies, they're dumb hillbillies that can't even afford a proper brown bess rifle. It's the same as how we'd make fun of people today for using surplus Soviet weapons. Now, because the American Revolution went the way that it did, eventually the song evolved as well. Instead of being a tune used to mock the American colonists, it was being appropriated by those same colonists to rub it into the British that they'd won the war and sent them packing back to King George. And that's how you get this version. Yankee Doodle is the tune that we all delight in. It suits for feasts, it suits for fun, and just as well for fighting. Which admittedly rhymes a whole lot better. So that's all the groundwork that we needed to lay to get to the song that we all know. It was originally written to make fun of American farmers until those farmers won the war and reclaimed the song as a source of pride. However, the pejorative of names involved never actually changed, merely the context of the tune as a whole. Yankee still meant hillbilly, Doodle was still a simpleton or a fool, and, in a fun bit of etymology, the term would eventually be truncated into our word dude. So there you go. Dude is short for doodle, which is a German word meaning idiot. But what about the rest of it? Okay, here we go. This is about to go off the goddamn chain, because now we need to talk about the macaronis. And this is where we start to get really unhinged, so buckle up. So I need you to imagine an entire subculture of Ezra Miller's. If you know who Ezra Miller is, that's the perfect analogy. If you don't, then holy shit, are you in for a wild ride when you Google that name? That guy, sorry, that them, has committed so, so many varied crimes in so many jurisdictions. That's a rabbit hole you're going to have fun falling down. So to understand the macaronis, we're going to have to do some spade work. This is going to be way easier if you can Google macaroni fashion trend and actually look at how these crazy motherfuckers dressed, but I'll do my best to paint the picture. And first, we need to break down the term, because macaroni the people and macaroni the pasta are not the same thing, 
but there is an interesting etymological link. In our future brains, we tend to think of macaroni as a poor people food. And it is. It's cheap and easy. Ever since Kraft latched onto the idea of the product at the height of the Depression to keep themselves afloat, mac and cheese has been a poor people's staple. But that was not always the case. Back in the before times, macaroni used to be quite fancy. I've already gone on several tangents already, and as dearly as I'd love to dive down the macaroni rabbit hole, we're going to have to try and keep that powder dry for today. But think about it. Macaroni is usually made with cheese. Cheese isn't cheap today. Extrapolate that back through the ages. And good macaroni and cheese need special kinds of cheeses, things like mozzarella and bechamel and things of that nature. Not the kind of things that you'd be able to get your hands on if you were a filthy peasant living out in the boonies in the 1700s. So macaroni was a rich people food. In fact, Benjamin Franklin, the famous widow romancer, sex freak, fart enthusiast, skeleton collector, and occasional founding father, Benjamin Franklin, brought the idea of macaroni back to the Americas after his time as the diplomatic attaché to France. That's how fancy macaroni was. So for the period that we're talking about, late 18th century, macaroni was some seriously fancy shit. Mmm. God damn, Jimmy, this some serious gourmet shit. Think of it like we'd think of, I don't know, truffles or caviar today. Something super fancy that you'd serve at a high ball or something. And by extension, if you wanted to rather mockingly call someone fancy, you might refer to them as a macaroni. It's not super fancy, but that kind of mid-level, just above middle class region where people would get the joke. Like how I might mock someone by saying, oh, hey there, Chinos, or check out Gucci over there. It's like that. Check out Mr. Macaroni over there. He thinks he's fancy. Where'd you get that hat, Macaroni? That's kind of the framework we're talking about. But now, onto the macaronis as in the people, the subculture. The macaronis were the original dandies. They were all androgynous. The way it's put is, uh, to quote the reference here, removing the masculine to accentuate the feminine. But it just meant that they were dudes who might wear dresses, much like Ezra Miller. They weren't exactly gay or gender fluid or any of the modern terms we use because modern terms never apply to the past. We can never apply our cultural mores to the past. But there was a significant overlap in the Venn diagram of macaronis and homosexuality, which was illegal at the time. and It made them a radical fringe group. And how the macaronis dressed was famous. If you've ever heard the term hat on a hat, Well, these guys often went seven hats deep. I really need you to look up the paintings. They would put wigs on wigs on wigs on wigs until they quite literally had four feet of wigs coming out the top of their heads. And then they would put a tricorn hat on top of those wigs, which they could only put on with the help of a sword or a stick because nobody could reach that high. These guys were ten feet tall and most of it was wig. They would wear tight pants, shiny clothes, sequins, jewels, massive trains of capes flowing meters behind them. Macaronis look like if Elton John ate Liberace and then used a condensed form of Freddie Mercury as a perfume. But what we need to know is that macaronis were super fancy. They were so fancy that they were no longer fancy. They took it too far and came out the other end to the point of being gaudy and tacky. So there's something that used to happen back in the day, 1600s, 1700s, even later, that kind of period. Something that the scions of rich families would do would be to go on something known as the Grand Tour, as a coming-of-age ceremony. 
Terry Pratchett used to parody the Grand Tour as something he called the Grand Sneer, and once again, nobody satirizes better than Terry Pratchett. May he rest in peace. So young British boys from super-rich families, so the hated Tories, these young boys would go on the Grand Tour, where they would explore different cultures to give them a better understanding of how the world works before they got a crucial job in geopolitics because their uncle was an ambassador or something, and because these kids never actually interacted with the world, they only ever spoke to rich people of other countries who they were all related to, they never actually got an understanding of how the world works, and as a direct consequence, that's why Gaza is currently on fire today, go look up Alan Dulles sometime. So these young guys would go from their rich, snobby communities in their own countries and to identical rich, snobbish communities in other countries without ever interacting with anyone outside their social station, and they would call this world experience, even though it wasn't. But one thing that they would often discover was the deliciousness of a little-known meal known as macaroni which was virtually unknown outside of Italy and France at the time and was something of a delicacy. Gourmet shit! And these young dudes, these metrosexuals with their dozens of wigs and fancy clothes and blingity-bling would rave about their experiences overseas and they would often talk about this new, awesome dish known as macaroni. And something that entered into the vernacular at the time was calling things that they liked macaroni in the same way that people have used the word cool for centuries, or people of my generation might say that something is Gucci, or the next generation might call something, I don't know, their language is incomprehensible to me, so for Gen Z, maybe they call it straight bus and no cap for real, I don't know. But that's what macaroni meant, something that is cool is macaroni. Oh, that's so macaroni. And that's where we get the term macaroni in this context. And these people became known as the macaroni club, or more simply, the macaronis. They would come back from their overseas tours with their fancy clothes and their hats on top of eight wigs and often wearing two, two pocket watches. And then they would wear ball gowns even though they were men. Scandalous, I know. And they became their own subculture. Sort of how David Beckham went from being a middle-class sports baller to the face of metrosexuality. If you can remember back that long, I'm starting to feel very old now. And, obviously, the bolted-on oldies of the day were deeply offended by the passage of time and the transition of popular culture, because no matter what time period we're talking about, people can never handle change. So the scandalized older generations took every opportunity to belittle the Macaroni Club. The Oxford Magazine in 1770 described the Macaroni Club as such, quote, There is indeed a kind of animal, neither male nor female, a thing of the neutral gender, lately started up among us. It is called a macaroni. It talks without meaning. It smiles without pleasantry. It eats without appetite. It rides without exercise. It wenches without passion. End quote. And you can replace the word macaroni with the word millennial and the Oxford magazine with any Murdoch publication, and you can see how nothing has changed in nearly 300 years. It wenches without passion. Title of your sex tape. But yes, obviously, it's the title of sex tape. So that's what a macaroni is. When we refer to the song Yankee Doodle, that's what a macaroni is. It's not to do with the pasta, but more for a flamboyant subculture defined by their over-the-top fashion sense. And this is also where the dandy part of Yankee Doodle Dandy comes in, because the dandies were the inheritors of the macaroni movement. History is a rich tapestry. So now we have all of the elements together. We can put them together and get a greater context for the song. So Yankee Doodle went to town. 
As we now know, a Yankee Doodle was a country bumpkin, a hillbilly from the colonies who didn't have much refinement. He was a simple farmer, not someone of knowledge or bearing. So when one of these people went to town, it wasn't as a rich, educated person with business in town, it was a filthy commoner who didn't belong there. Riding on a pony. This unwashed peasant, and we assume he's unwashed because obviously his parents aren't aristocracy and people have always been horrible, this unwashed peasant wouldn't have even been able to afford a proper horse. Why, he's so poor that the only thing he can afford is a pony. A tiny, decrepit little thing. But look at him. This is hilarious. He's riding that pony like an actual horse. He thinks he's people. Isn't that just darling? He stuck a feather in his cap and called it macaroni. So this guy is so poor, so uneducated, so unrefined, that he thinks that just because he sticks a feather in his hat, that makes him as fancy as the macaronis, that famous fashionable movement. Oh, this is too rich. Does he even realize that he's too poor to live? You can't just put a feather in your cap and call yourself fancy. That's not how it works. Come along and mock him with me. We will ridicule him until he realizes that it is a crime to be born poor. It's the same thing as sewing a Versace label on a handbag that you find at a thrift store. Just because you put the label on it doesn't make it Versace. Although that does open up a whole can of worms about modern fashion trends and how ridiculous they are. But that's for a future show because it's very hard to find a fashion house today that wasn't founded by a literal Nazi. So anyway, that's the song. That's why it is what it is. Yankee Doodle was written by the British to mock American colonists for their colonial ways, which admittedly is not their fault. But racism and classism have never been known for their logical consistency. However, by the end of the American Revolution and that nation's victory against the British, the song had been reclaimed by the Americans as a point of pride and now serves as a patriotic call to action, rather than its original purpose of calling all Americans idiots to the point that Yankee Doodle is now actually the state song of Connecticut. The birth of this patriotic call to arms comes from the very end of the Revolutionary War. The Americans, with significant backing from the French, lest we forget, the Allied forces had beaten the English back to the point of surrender, and on October 19, 1781, at Yorktown, Virginia, and never look up the lyrics to Virginia's state song, oh God, on October 19, 1781, General Charles Cornwallis, first Marquis of Cornwallis and commander of the British forces in the New World, General Cornwallis formally surrendered British control of the Americas to the American and French forces. And then, so the legend goes at least, when the surrender was formally concluded and the British were making their way back to their ships bound for England, the Marquis de Lafayette ordered that the band play them off to the tune of Yankee Doodle Dandy, a song originally written about how the Americans were too stupid to fight, now being played as the British lost one of their most significant colonies. So now you know why things be like they do. That's why. Now go and look up some paintings of macaronis. Those dudes were not right in the head. Be prepared to laugh. Catch you in the new year, everyone. What the hell's this? Melvin and the Squirrels, part of the rodent invasion of the early 60s. Da, 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 da.